hospitals and schools in particular are being targeted and uh, watched by the federal government for violations um, of, quote, discrimination against this community. Welcome to Insights, the podcast of Forerunners of America, where we're here every time to warn the nation from a biblical perspective and to help you respond in faith. And today, we're going to be looking at is transgenderism taking root in our hospitals across this country? So anyway, we're going to jump in here quick, and I want to welcome my guest, Justin Barber. Welcome, Justin. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm so grateful you could be on. And we'll get to know you a little bit here as we go, but can we just uh, jump in here and can you explain how long have you been a nurse, um, what capacities, that kind of thing? Sure, sure. Yeah, so I've been a nurse for 13 years. I've served seven years consecutively on a, a cardiac unit. Uh, and then on that same unit, I ended up transitioning into leadership and was for five years the uh, assistant manager and then a, a floor supervisor. Um. And then uh, in 2022, I transitioned into a new role as a informatics nurse for, for my uh, hospital that I serve at. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? You said informatics. Yeah. That one usually gives people a little bit of a pause. What is an informatics nurse? So it is a, it's a very niche uh, area of nursing where I serve basically as a liaison between the um, analysts who go and build our electronic health record that the nurses then use on the front lines. And I, I, I serve the nurses on the front lines. So it's not in direct patient care anymore, but it is basically in care of, I look at it as in care of our, our, uh, frontline workers and making sure that I advocate for what, what their needs are uh, in the electronic health record. And if I've got this right, um, it's because of your current nursing role, why you've got some information that you want to share with our listeners here today, and I can't wait to jump into that, but I do want to just stop for a moment here, and people know that Insights, this is a Christian podcast, like why are we talking about uh, LGBTQ specifically emphasized here today, transgenderism? Why are we talking about this on a Christian podcast? And I think it's just vital that we understand that God cares about this issue, and he cares about what we're doing in the workplace. I think by the end of our time, we'll get to some of that and what your thoughts are on that, Justin. But but what do you think? I mean, I know you're a strong believer. Like, why are we talking about this today? Yeah. Well, you know, truth matters. Um, you know, and, and God makes it pretty clear that he made us male and female, and he did that for a very specific reason. He further delineates, even in the scriptures in multiple places, the need for a clear, defined uh, roles between that of a man and a woman, and he he makes gender distinction. He doesn't blend and um, blur the lines of gender. Um, all throughout Scripture, it's abundantly clear. So I think it's really important, and that, you know, obviously that impacts all of our Christian workers in the hospital, and there are thousands of us. Justin, when did sexual orientation? When did that really get on your radar, personally and professionally? Sure, sure. Um, before I dive right into that, I am going to go ahead and give just a small disclaimer. Um, and uh, basically, the disclaimer is I am not speaking on behalf of the hospital that I work for. I'm not a spokesperson for the hospital. And uh, uh, really, this is just me sharing my views and what I believe is the truth. 
So basically, you know, I was sitting on a meeting uh, when I was first introduced to this kind of um, new concept for me. Um, I was sitting on a meeting and I ended up hearing an OBGYN physician express that we have, quote, male patients delivering on our OB units. And um, I had to kind of do a uh, double take on that. One of the, we have males with vaginas delivering babies on our OB units. This is, this is a very uh, profound restructuring that has to take place in this person's uh, life to come to the personal belief and really, in my mind, the suppression of science to lead to a statement that men are giving birth to babies on OB units. Yeah, so there's um, a lot of a, I just a lot of really ass- alarming. A lot of assumptions there, yes, alarming. And did you say that this person was sharing this is currently happening Correct. in the OB unit? Like this isn't something in the future, this is already happening? Yes, that is that is her her belief that we have males who are delivering babies. And there's no caveat. It's not saying, well, we have transgender uh, males or something along those lines trying to explain that how how the uh, this came to be. This is this is males, which is uh, you know, just a very interesting unequivocal statement she made there. So how come didn't she go with what I typically hear through social media, mainstream media, that this is now a woman who is giving birth? Why did she say it that way that this is a man giving birth? Uh yeah, that's a very good question. Um it's a well, this would be a woman who identifies as a male who didn't get the reproductive organs removed. I got gotcha. a woman. So it gets a little tricky when you start to do the semantics of, of you know, wh- where we're at. Yeah, that clears it up. So go ahead. Sure. So obviously, you know, when I heard that, I realized that I was going to be dealing with, you know, and a lot of this, these meetings are because of a merger that we were having. Um, and so, you know, there's a little bit of cultural philosophy from one hospital impacting cultural philosophy of another hospital. And I realized that statement alone, you know, from somebody who's, who's, um, you know, a physician and leader ultimately at their hospital, that means there's cultural implications for um, the hospital merging. Um, and so I just kind of kept my ear to the ground and realized we've got a lot of additional stuff sort of coming. One of the main things that's coming to our hospital is going to be um, some documentation specifically dedicated to sexual orientation and gender identity where um, they're intaking this information on patients and they're going to be asking, you know, obviously it's going to display what their legal sex is, which is what the state would recognize as their legal sex. It'll take into account their sexual orientation. Um, and then it would go into uh, a discussion or uh, an intake uh, form for, you know, the uh, gender identity, which could be any number of, we currently have a list of somewhere around 107 not in the chart because that's too many to list. We just have an other button there that you could go ahead and click on. But really, uh, the list, the list according to this community, is ever growing. And the current list is somewhere I think around 107. So it could be any number of 107. Then it goes into the sex assigned at birth, and that's the new terminology that is being used for your biological sex. So they would do, they would express that I was assigned male as if it was imposed upon me at birth that I was a male 
because the doctor made some obvious observations about me rather than just my sex was recognized as male um, at birth. So that's a very interesting nuance as well within the documentation. That's so it's, coming. Kind of, it's coming into the hospital pretty much just under the verbiage of this is the world we're in now. There's been no discussion. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like or debate. You're just the, the nurses, oh. doctors, you're more or less just being handed this and you're supposed to just accept this way of talking. Well, I think what's actually ironic is there is a robust debate going on all around the country and there are experts in the field who disagree with this. Um, The standard of care that's being held up um, and sort of promoted and infiltrating really all of our hospitals around the country that are taking this on. And I think it's really being, you know, promoted by government. But this um, ideology or this, this standard of care that's being held up is, you know, first you have to affirm. So that's part of the standard of care is that you have to affirm what they believe about themselves. So if I believe that I'm a a woman and I want to be called by she, her pronouns, you, the first step as a practitioner to taking care of that patient is to affirm and acknowledge that I'm a she, her. That's first step. The next step is then to begin counseling somebody towards the, you know, the uh, hormone therapy. Uh, and then potentially leading them on to gender reassignment surgery where they go and reconstruct and create um, organs that are really a facade of the real thing. Mm -hmm. That's something we've touched on before in this podcast is that you're really not changing someone's gender. You just happen to be uh, a male now that has removed his genitals and Mm -hmm. uh, possibly... um, uh, uh, had re- reconstruction surgery to have a vagina, but the po- point is, is that it doesn't matter if we have uh, hormone therapy, sex reassignment surgery. At the end of the day, every one of your cells still cries out with either XY chromosomes or XX chromosomes mm-hmm. that you are either a male or a female. Right. Right. Yeah. So what I think is interesting is we're we're adopting a language. We're adopting um, a way of speaking around gender and sex while there is a robust debate going on. And it's really being pushed, I think, primarily by government, federal government. Hospitals accept funds from the federal government, so they do the bidding of the federal government when it comes right down to it. So even though we are a nonprofit, most hospitals are, because they accept government funds, they're beholden to the ideologies of the federal government. Um, and so, you know, the way that I've understood it from others that I've spoken to who are in the know um, uh, is that hospitals and schools in particular are being targeted and uh, watched by the federal government for violations um, of, quote, discrimination against this community. Um, and all it takes is a very simple EOC complaint against the hospital and the hospital could be fined, um, you know, upwards of a million dollars for a violation uh, or a perceived violation. So, um, there is a sense, I think, in which a lot of the leaders at hospitals, even leaders who may not want this to come, they feel they don't have a choice, but to accept it. Um, so that's the real trick. 
So they need the funding and it's coming from the government. The government government is basically giving the the, the rules uh, to receive yeah. the funds. So, okay, so there's um, a financial, clearly um, a motive there. Um, how about with patients that do go down this path, hormone therapy, um, sex reassignment surgery, does the hospital pharmaceuticals, others, do they make money off this? Is there a a financial motivation coming from that area? Yeah. It's a little hard to go and dig down into the exact financial implications of it, but I know that um, gender reassignment surgeries can uh, be somewhere around the the amount of $70,000, $80,000 for a gender reassignment surgery. So yes, there's money to be had there. And then... um, on top of that, the the hormone therapy, uh, the best numbers I've been able to find, which again, like I said, it's tricky to go and find it. I don't think it's really uh, shared out to the world um, liberally, this information, but it's around uh, $1.3 to $1.5 million for every individual who is converted uh, with hormone therapy who, who, who goes down that road. So... so if- the pharmaceutical companies certainly do stand to go and earn a significant amount of money. Boy, that's disturbing in and of itself. And, um, you know, I, I'm kind of surprised that transgenderism in particular has gained the traction throughout culture, government, media, wherever, um, that it has. I, I was just looking at some polls like this one's just from May by Rasmussen. And it, it just talks about that 71% of Americans believe that there are only two genders, male right. and female. And that actually uh, talks about that only 23% of Americans disagree with that statement. And yet it seems right. like you're living in a culture with these um, protocols, documents that tell you what to do. And it's like this mindset that has come over your hospital. And I know it's not happening just at your hospital. Obviously it's throughout the country because everybody's right. beholden to the federal government's money. But it's like a a mindset, but what I'm trying to say is that culturally we're not there, and yet it seems like if you just look up these policies and what's being explained to all the hospital employees, it seems like oh, there must be at least 95 percent of everybody that already right. agrees with this in our culture, and the answer is no. Nothing further from the truth. In fact, you know, I, I actually, I actually uh, have have read that Rasmussen poll. It's a very compelling poll. In fact. There's a fairly significant majority of, of even Democrats that that poll further just uh, uh, delineates who also uh, disagree with this, which is interesting. But they seem to sort of be, be beholden to whatever the party wants uh, to have happen. So if that's yeah. sort of the narrative, then they'll they'll get behind it even if they don't agree with it. Another poll um, that was put out there by the Convention of States action in conjunction with Trafalgar, and this is last fall. So this is right before the midterm election of 2022. And this poll showed that 73% of Americans would not vote for somebody that's pro-LGBTQ. And again, just stunning. I believe it was 27% said that they, they would. And it's just stunning. I'm going to put that up on the screen. The, the top purple bar there just shows the 63% that strongly agree. And then the next uh, bar down, the, the dark green, that's um, uh, another 10% that agree or strongly agree with uh, 
with this statement about um, only voting for candidates that are not pushing LGBTQ. And there's all these people um, as well. It's not, uh, like you just said a moment ago, Justin, it is not uh, simply uh, along political lines to get these high percentages of people that are against transgenderism, LGBTQ, and stuff like this. It actually is uh, Republicans, independents, and Democrats, all three categories are have the majority over 50 percent of that category believes that we should not be moving forward on these on these areas especially especially for minors well and i think um kind of along those lines too you know when you hear people talk about the idea of gender right uh, gender being uh fluid and it's not not it's non-binary when they use those terms um, they explain it by saying, well, gender is a social construct. So gender identity is a social construct. And no, it's a scientific yeah. construct and they refuse yeah. to follow the science and data. And by exactly. the way, by the way, it is a theological construct, which means God right. told us this. So exactly. anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Well, totally agree. And, um, but, but the unique thing is it doesn't even meet the qualifications of a social construct. A social construct means that you have a general consensus in sure. society that this exists according to the definition they uphold. So they haven't even met the threshold of a social construct in order to claim that gender being um, up to the individual is a social construct. Interesting. Um, yeah. You would need consensus, and I don't think those polls bear that. Out. So going back to your journey at the hospital, um, so you get this information, or you ran across this shift in verbiage mindset um, because of your current role. Can you explain that a little bit, like why you would know something that possibly other nurses and doctors haven't even seen? Sure. Uh, most of it ha has to do with the fact that we're blending systems. You know, when a, when a hospital merges, you end up trying to blend a lot of your systems together. You blend your policies, you blend your um, electronic health record. Um, really, the most efficient thing is to blend your electronic health records together so that you're all functioning on one build system. So that's my role. I work in the electronic health record. And so we've got a, a project to go and blend this system all together. And with that, I see a lot of things that many other folks in this system would not see. I'm one of only two uh, informaticists for my local hospital. I'm full-time, and then my partner who does this as well is um, PRN. Um, they're still currently working a lot a lot more than PRN hours. But, um, you know, we, we hear this information that will likely be disseminated out probably sometime uh, next year. Um, you know, maybe only a couple months or a month before this would go live. And so for me, it was very concerning. I'm hearing this, realizing and, and knowing that this would be a very big impact to our hospital. Um, I wanted to be able to, you know, address this early on for folks and let them know what's coming so they can kind of formulate a personal sort of way of thinking about it and plan of action for themselves. Yeah, people are going to have to respond to this. I mean, I don't think you can mm -hmm. just assume that this is going to go away or everything's going to be fine. I think if you're a person of conviction, I think that this is going to call us to to have a response. Um, but maybe we can get to the, more of that here in a few minutes. Sure. Um, but uh, practically, have you ever taken care of 
uh, transgender people uh, when you were a nurse on the floor, so previous to your current position. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've taken care of uh, a couple uh, over the course of my career, and you know, it's always been something that I'm capable of doing. I care. I care for people of all of a, of a variety of different backgrounds, um, and you know, I, I care for people. Uh, Throughout the course of my career, I've cared for many people that I would disagree with them in their ideologies, their personal beliefs, um, and really even how that intersects with their health care. Um, but I can do that and, and do that in an unbiased manner and still be loving to them and still be kind to them. Uh, where I draw my line, though, is really um, when it comes to uh, the affirmation side of it, right? I can't affirm to their face. I can't affirm that a man who identifies as a woman is therefore actually a woman. I can't do that as a Christian because it's just not true. Um, and so when we start getting into pronouns, um, you know, where we're documenting in the chart that this biological male who identifies as a woman wants to be called she, her pronouns, that implies that as a practitioner, I have to use those pronouns um, in order to fully care for that patient just by asking those questions, how would you like to be referred infers that every practitioner there, there, uh, you know, thereafter has to use those pronouns. And that's where I really have to draw my line. I can't do that. I can get creative and I could just use their first name and try not to use anything that's pronoun related throughout the care, just so that I'm being as gracious as I can while they're in their moment of sort of duress at the hospital. I don't think that's the place for anybody to sit there and confront somebody about that. That's not that's not the goal at all. Um, the goal would be to care for them, make them feel as comfortable as possible in their setting, but I cannot violate my own conscience while doing that. So are you uh, risking your job by uh, responding to transgenders this way? Well, I think, you know, it just really depends on how you go and respond to it, right? I mean, I think there are probably locations throughout the country where, yeah, you might be uh, jeopardizing your job. I think that if you respond in a gracious manner, like I like I was saying, like there are some very creative ways to make sure that you're taking care of somebody and not violating your conscience, but also not sitting there uh, confirming that you're some sort of an ally or um, affirming uh, presence for them um, in this what what we believe is a lie. It's a, that's just not truth. So, yeah, I suppose it's possible. Um, you know, and I think you know. Hopefully, we'll get into some discussion about maybe some action steps we can take uh, in in regard to that. So, before we do, let's just talk about the whole mindset of loving people. We all know we're supposed to love people, but there's also this kind of line I think we can cross: loving people. And we're actually just keeping the peace. And so, Justin, if you can just respond to this, like, should we just go along to get along? Should we just keep the peace? Um, be, because that would be, for a lot of people, that would be the most loving thing to do. Yeah. I actually, I've seen that uh, quite a bit. Um, there are certainly circles even I've been near to and had friends that were in who would look at this topic and would even maybe uh, have an appearance of being an ally to them, um, maybe even wearing a rainbow flag while also championing the cross cross of Jesus. And, um, I, you know, I think that's really a false love 
Um, it is, it's a, it's an, it's a worldly, um, conjured up love, um, that really is not defined by the scriptures. So if you really want to learn how to love people, um, it's not loving to affirm, right? So we need to learn, um, well, like you said earlier, especially when you're, um, think if you're going to try to be loving and you're affirming lies, lies always put us in bondage. Right. Exactly. Yep. So I think it's really important to go back as Christians, you need to go and redefine what love is in your mind. If you, if you think that that is the approach you should take, you need to look up scripture and try to understand, well, what is love? And when we go there, we go on, you know, I think the first passage that comes to my mind is first Corinthians 13. If you go and read through that, you'll get a really great definition of what love is. And so in verse four, you know, of Corinthians 13, four through eight there, it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. So um, I think there's a couple of really key takeaways there. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. So you can't sit there and claim to be loving and rejoice in this wrongdoing and, and you know, join alongside someone in an affirming manner when it is wrong. And also, love rejoices in the truth. Um, so love does not mean that I always affirm and support someone else's beliefs and actions. That's just, they're not synonymous. Uh, love doesn't mean that I'm necessarily going to be, and it really doesn't mean that I'm going to be an ally for everyone. There are going to be people I am not an ally of, and that is my way of showing my love. Love doesn't encourage in any way a person to live a life that's ultimately going to lead to some sort of spiritual destruction. That is that is just not love. And if you go further into, you know, what does love look like? Second John 1, 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. So love looks like obedience, not disobedience. <laughs> Um, John, first John three eighteen. let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Um, so love is once again, linked intrinsically to action and truth, um, in, in obedience and truth. And then, you know, when you go and, uh, I think this is a really great passage for us when we start thinking about action steps for us to take too, Ephesians 4, 11 through 15 kind of gives us a nice um, introduction into um, how to how to handle uh, topics in a loving manner. It says, you know, he gave, gave the apostles, prophets, he speaking about God, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, that's what we have right now, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That is what we're dealing with when we're talking about this. 
but rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We don't grow and we don't become like Christ if we don't speak truth. And we can't be loving if we don't speak truth. And our love is not truth if it's not, our love is not true love, um, you know, if it, if it, if, if it does not um, revolve around the truth. Wow, that's really well put. Love without truth really isn't love then. And so right. well mm-hmm. said, and it's throughout the scriptures and just maybe one broad statement, and I want to get onto a couple other things before our time gets away, but um, Jesus and Paul, they did it anything but keep the peace. I mean, they're very loving, yeah. very truthful, but you look at their lives throughout scripture and many others of the most godly mm-hmm. people, they're often finding themselves in tough situations, standing up for what's right and standing against wicked mindsets and uh, and the wicked in general. So yeah, yeah. that was uh, well put, Justin. You know, I think about actually one, one other perspective too is this. I think love actually uh, at times will be quite offensive. Um, we link um, offense t- to hate and being offensive doesn't always mean, now it can mean, like there are plenty of offensive people that are hateful people, but um, to say something that offends somebody doesn't necessarily mean you hate them. Um, I would say, you know, there's a couple of great examples. I'm, I do photography and I do cin- cinematography. And the way that I learned that was by one of my good friends who was very free with his criticisms, you know? And the only reason he did that was because he really wanted me to get good at it. So, you know, you take a picture of a horizon, you finally get your exposure just perfect. You get your aperture just right and everything looks great. And uh, he would go and look at the picture and be like, well, you know, you're getting there, you're getting there. Uh, but the horizon's crooked and and that just won't fly. Hey, so hey. you need to learn to get your horizon straight. Otherwise your photograph just, it won't look good. And uh, everybody will know it. They may not know why, but they will know that it's wrong. Seriously. And, you know, that doesn't always feel good when you've been working so hard to go and get that just right. But um, that's, that's, that's love. That's actually being loving is to, to offer the correction for somebody that may be slightly offensive, may hurt their feelings, but actually draws them to uh, a more perfect outcome. You know, um, a lot of what you've said, Justin, is really helpful for any Christian. And, and I'm thinking of the church specifically needs to hear this and these messages and so forth. But you know, uh, that idea of love has so many implications um, and, and with it being rooted in the truth. Uh, but then as we shift over to your work setting, and this is applicable to everybody in their work, work setting, it's not okay just to pass this off as if I say nothing, I'm loving. No, we need to be right. asking God and being led by the, the scriptures, the Holy Spirit. We need to be led here in terms of being salt and light in the culture, like society is this massive battlefront where we want people to come to faith. We want them to know the truth as well. And it's not mm-hmm. okay for us to shy away. And so thank you. Just your life, your example, uh, your work setting. I think that's a, I think that's a sermon in, in, in and of itself. Thank you. So, so let's shift just a little bit here. And uh, let me ask you, uh, do you have any other thoughts about how sh- Christians should respond to individuals that are transgender? I think the first thing is, I, I don't think it's for everyone to go and look for opportunities to try and bring up the topic. Um, if we look at it specifically in the work setting, so like as a nurse, I'm taking care of people. 
I don't look for opportunities to try and bring up the topic um, in order to sort of address the impending uh, topic. You know, I, I think there's times and places, you know, Ecclesiastes speaks to that. There's a time for everything, right? So I think we have to be very cognizant of that. But I think what we do need to do is be asking God to prepare us for when that conversation arises because it will. And when it does, we need to be able to speak the truth with patient, kind, and really unhesitant boldness when it comes about. Um, we shouldn't be apologetic as Christians for what we believe because it is the truth. And it is the only thing. It's the key to hope for these individuals who identify as transgenders. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think very cautious about trying to go out and and find a way to have a conversation about this with just everybody. Uh, but when the topics arise, being ready to just say exactly what we believe, knowing what we believe. So if you don't know what you believe on this as a Christian, you better figure it out. Right. Absolutely. And there's resources at the forerunnersofamerica.org website that people can look at things. A lot of articles that Timothy Zebel has written, as well as other things, other podcasts, so forth, that you can really sort this issue out. We have got to be prepared as the body of Christ, mm -hmm. not only uh, for our own good and within the church and to be sharp, but also as you're talking about, this topic is going to come up. It's not going away. It's growing. And it is interesting to me, like one thing that I might suggest bringing up, um, if we're not, obviously we want to bring up the biblical uh, uh the biblical foundation for this, but sometimes you're in a conversation, you're not quite there yet. And one thing I would bring up is just some, some things like a, a recent Duke un, University survey showed all the people that are transitioning back to their original um, gender. And there's so much data out there related to that. And just to say to somebody, hey, you know, um, I've read a lot, or I maybe I even know people personally, but this, this change, this um, sexual reorientation it did not turn out well uh, for many people. You can point to surveys or personal examples, but I think that can help people that are questioning or wondering. I think that yeah. can help people begin to, if they just hear once from each of us, like, you know, there's actually data that shows this does not turn out well for people. And I know on that topic, Justin, you personally in the medical field, you've you've highlighted um how sometimes surgeries don't turn out well. Oh, Do you yeah. want to hit on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, you know, we have we have the uh, the reassignment surgeries for male transitioning to female and female transitioning to male. Um, female transitioning to male, uh, they have to go and harvest skin from somewhere on that person's body in order to create uh, an appendage that looks like the male genitalia, and um, you know. The, the problem is in those particular surgeries, the rates of, of complication for an average uh, surgery performed by, by just anybody who does these surgeries across the nation, on average, these surgeries um, result in often uh, just north of 50% uh, complication rate uh, for uh, urethral complications. So, uh, transitioning from uh, getting getting a, a female to male gender affirming surgery 
is likely to to give you more than a 50-50 shot of not being able to urinate properly. Yeah, I mean, 50% now of these people that are still females, but now they think they're male, but 50% of them are suffering. Like, are you kidding me? Whoever would go under the knife with those kinds yeah. of odds? And the best and the best chance you have of, of getting a slightly better outcome is if you go to some of the premier surgeons doing this, but even in those cases, the numbers are somewhere around 25% urethral complication rates with, with those. So the outcomes are not great. Uh, the indications it, are lackluster. Right. And how many people know this? Uh, you know, so, okay, any uh, uh, commensurate example, meaning going from male to female, like are there any issues sure. after after oh, males goodness. have had their genitals removed? The crazy thing is this is not something that's talked about a lot, is that, um, you know, obviously when you go and create um, a... a a hole in somebody's body that is supposed to mimic the vagina, um, you have to make it with skin. You have to make it with some sort of tissue. And this is not the tissue God created to go in that space. And so these individuals end up having to, for the rest of their life, put a special tool up that hole and dilate every single day, usually for the rest of their lives. So that's not something that we talk about. If you stop doing that all of a sudden, that that space will close off because the body perceives that that hole is a wound. It, it doesn't perceive it as natural. And so it will close off eventually, and you'll end up with basically the, the equivalent of big, big um, you know, the potential for a massive abscess, which will kill you. So huh. it's, it's no light matter. Um, and these, these folks get stuck with this the rest of their life. Wow, nobody's hearing that. And I, I can't say nobody, but I, what I have encountered, we're bombarded with just the opposite in culture, that this is going to liberate you, free you. If you don't okay. do this, you're gonna, your child's going to commit suicide, and on and on the narratives yep. go, and all of it, I believe, is lies. But Listen. So, Justin, as we close here, what action steps would you suggest? Well, I think for the Christian, I think there's two, sort of a two-pronged approach, and I think we ought to take both, especially in the United States. Uh, the one is a spiritual approach that we ought to take as Christians, and then another one is kind of a government approach that I believe we really should take. So the first one is our spiritual approach. I think we need to, you know, take a moment to watch this as it's wafting across our country and maybe do some business personally with God. Um, and um, I think we ought to be uh, reading the the Word um, educating ourselves in, in what God wants us to know. We should be, you know, certainly praying for our country and our communities and for the transgender community, um, that the truth would be known. Um, but I think really the church also needs to do a little bit of inner reflection too. We're supposed to be salt and light and there are churches everywhere. So what have we failed to do as a church? How useless have we become as a church that, there are there's still at least 20 23 maybe 30 percent of the country that doubts basic biology and wants to blur the lines between god's very clear definition of male and female you know um i think it would be good for us to to reflect as a as as the church at um you know what we maybe uh, have failed to, de to deliver on in our our responsibilities as christians being salt and light and then um 
maybe ask ourselves where where have we been silent where we could have spoken we could have lovingly spoken with truth and with boldness um we can do some of that self-reflection and prepare ourselves to be ready to go and give that answer um, in the future. I think that would be some excellent steps that we could take as believers. The second prong to that is really protection of your rights. Um, We live in a very, very unique country um, where we've got rights that are guaranteed to the transgender community. We have rights that are guaranteed to the Christian and religious communities. Um, but all the, all the, all the while, it seems that our rights are constantly being, um, it's, it's being stretched how far we can really, um, stamp out the rights of the religious community. And so I, I actually went and developed a group specifically to, to address this. It's called healthcare truth and freedom Alliance. And we're gaining members, uh, right now, um, Say so when you say to address this, are you do you mean the this transgender issue. issue? Yeah, I would say the transgender issue as it applies to the rights of specifically healthcare workers. I think people could, uh, you know, apply this principle in other areas of work too, where it applies. But um, basically, the, this particular group, we're just we have a very simple in, um, uh, plan, um, and it's basically just to, to encourage those who are members keep working as they have been not to try and stir up anything we're not we're not out to be picketing hospitals and whatnot that's not the goal we're going to just continue to come to work we're going to continue to deliver exceptional um uh care and um and basically just keep an ear to the ground for any policies that might violate the or or cause someone to have to do something that would violate their conscience and what they believe is right. And in those instances, plan of action is very simple, uh, just to request a religious accommodation. Um, and, um, you know, according to Alliance Defending Freedom, I don't know if you're familiar with, with them, that's the attorney, nonprofit attorney organization that defends uh, people for freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and sanctity of life issues. Um, they're kind of plan of action is very similar to this and they've expressed to me that uh, um, most organizations are providing reasonable accommodations for their employees without any kind of a a fight at all it's just a a respectful request and I think that's the least that we can and should do Um, but where those accommodations are not provided legal action should and uh, can and should be taken I think to um, and, and we would do that with, with our group, um, with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom. So I think, you know, it's really important to, to kind of take that approach. We live in a very unique country. We live in the constitutional Republic. Um, and, you know, I want to kind of bring this out that constitutional Republic, you know, has a chief executive and we got representatives that are elected. Well, who likes, who elects the representatives? It's the people. And the rules by which these uh, representatives are confined to operate, they're written down in the Constitution. Well, who established the Constitution? Says it in the preamble. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, 
ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. So, in our country, the the elected officials are granted their authority by the people. Um, and the people establish the Constitution, which is um, what we have then a right to and an obligation, I think, to defend. And I don't think that's out of out of alignment with Scripture. If you look at Daniel 2, 20 and 21, Blessed be the name of God, of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, and he removes kings and sets up kings. So God's in charge of rising up the authorities that will be in place in a, in a nation and taking them down. And I think a lot of times Christians apply that to, well, God raised up Joe Biden, and yes, he did, but he raised him up vicariously through the people in our country. So I think it's important to remember that as um, United States citizens, we are ultimately in charge. So our action steps should reflect that. I think that's very good. And what's your website again, if people are interested in um, maybe becoming a part of this? So I don't have a general website yet. Um, we've kept it local to uh, the local team so far, but I anticipate down the road, we'll actually launch out a website. And once we've got kind of our, our plan of action well-established within our small group, I'd like to expand that out and encourage other groups at other hospitals across the country to do the same thing. Basically advise people of their rights, look for violations, request accommodation, pursue legal action where needed. And again, the name of your new organization? Uh, Healthcare Truth and Freedom Alliance. Okay, so I'm assuming that someday we can Google that and hopefully we can find it. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. It's brand yeah. new. Yeah, it's uh, like less than a month old, but we've already got a lot of folks that have signed up. Well, very good, Justin. Thank you for being on the podcast today. And I trust there's been lots of insights for people as well as um, warnings of what's coming as well as, uh, as well as just how to respond in faith and to really walk this out in Christ. So thank you, Justin. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. And thank you for joining us on Insights. In the description, we will put links to the articles, the surveys that we were quoting earlier in this podcast, that in America, most people, regardless of political affiliation, Christian or not Christian, most Americans are not in favor of transgenderism. So look for those links in the description, and I look forward to being with you next time on Insights.